today we celebrate, and uh, we celebrate loudly the reversal of Roe v. Wade, which has left a bloody and barbaric stain on the soil of our land. For five decades, millions of babies have been killed, dissected, and sold for profit, especially so in the poorest neighborhoods of our nation and in California, the vast majority of them for the convenience of the mother. I say the mother because Roe v. Wade aborted the father out of the equation altogether. This ruling opened the door to women and men to live in even more debauchery. It allowed the sex slave industry to flourish as the enslaved girls could now be used over and over again. And today, an entire generation of black people are not here, just as the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, wanted all along. But most of all, it was our government encouraging people to rebel against God and nature and to do whatever we wanted. This, this is what's behind all the women and men shrieking across our land today. A generation that was never spanked or disciplined has been told, no, you can't do whatever you want. No, you are not autonomous. No. But at least it's them shrieking rather than the babies before their vocal cords are cut. Yet God has seen it all. And as the peoples rage and mock Christians and our God, he replies, as it says in Isaiah 57, Draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial, for deserting me you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them, you have loved their bed, you have looked on nakedness. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? Our country has long deserted God and our new gods have demanded much blood and we've gladly given it to them. Moloch demands blood but lures us with the God of Mammon. We were adulterous to God in our hearts long before we were adulterous whichever way we pleased. But this same God also says in the same chapter, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This ruling is a great thing, for it corrects an injustice long overdue. But our land still cries out for justice for the blood spilled of millions. Thus today is a day of celebration, but also of repentance. For this God, he comes close to those who are contrite who are sorry for their rebellion against him and who turn from it. He revives the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. So today we celebrate a great victory. God is great, God is good, and he has done a great and good thing. So then, for you who have prayed for so, so long, and I know that there are some in this church who have prayed for decades, literally. Well, well done. Thank you. 
for you who have committed the sin of abortion or contributed to it by encouraging it, hear the gospel that for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. You may be cleansed. You may be made pure again. You may be at peace and at rest if you are in him, if you run to him for refuge. For you who think you are less free today, consider that abortion was never your right in the first place. God never gives mankind the right to unjustly spill blood, especially that of the helpless and the innocent. You never had this right, no matter what nine old white men in black robes decided in 1973. For you who think we should not celebrate today because of someone else's feelings, just remember that's exactly how people complained of David as he danced gleefully before the ark as it returned to Jerusalem. And lastly, as many have said, well, now we need to really do the work to support these mothers. But I want to say to you, the church, you, you have been doing the work quietly all along since the very beginning when we Christians were the ones who went searching early in the morning for exposed babies and cared for them and raised them up. So for you Christians who have been doing the work all along through raising your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, through adoption, through supporting pregnancy resource centers, through loving the widow and the orphan in our church just as James commands us, in short, for all who have been following God's word all along, you've been doing the work. And today, the Lord commends you. The Lord bless you. Keep going. Your labor is not in vain and will not have been in vain. Today is a day of celebration. Today is a day of unbridled celebration for all who love our God and love the life that is in his risen son. So, that is why we celebrate, because he has done a good thing and a great thing. So, as we... Let's pray once more. Father, will you work now through your word? Will you come and make it clear? Will you give your son's intent with which he spoke? Will you give that intent uh, fire and power, work its way into us, Work Jesus' intent with these words deeply into our hearts. Let it mold us and shape us and change us. Let us walk out of here today, not just the Costa Rica team, but we all recommissioned for what you would have for us. Set us on a, on a new trajectory, a trajectory whereby at the very end of all things, we will stand with joy and confidence. Make us strong, not in ourselves, but in your strength, I pray. Amen. Well, today we look at the second half of Jesus' sermon about the future here in Luke 21, about the future and the end of all things. As we said last week, it, it is crucial that we listen to Jesus' teaching, and as I just prayed, we listen to him the way he wants his teaching to be understood. Um, that is, not listening today with Okay, is Jed teaching my preferred eschatology? Is Jed, is Jed teaching my timeline? Is Jed teaching according to my favorite radio preacher's way of looking at this passage? Um, is Jed on my eschatological team? Um, no, we, we need to lay ourselves under Jesus' teaching and let his point lay upon us and work its way into us. He's, what Jesus is trying to do here is equip us with characteristics Characteristics that will enable us to endure to the very end. And this is crucial. You must have this. You must have this. Yes, Christians are those who have once prayed a prayer sometime. That's true. We are not less than that, but we are more than that. Authentic followers of Jesus endure in following him until the end. Perfectly no, as we will see. But in faithfulness and endurance until the end. And Jesus here is equipping us for that pilgrimage, for that journey. This is love. Jesus is exercising wise love with us here. So do not hear this as a sermon for the people, you know, who really geek out about the end time stuff. You know, don't, don't, don't think that's for them, it's not for me. Uh, no, Jesus 
is ushering us here into a profoundly important discipline to start with the end of all things and to work your way back to today and to let that reality work its way into how we live today. Today. And it is, what we're about to read is an incredible privilege. An incredible privilege. There's a couple in our church that I know of who, who always says, you know what, isn't it great we know the end? <laughs> we, we know the end. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Um, we, we know the end. And it, it is an immense privilege to know the end because Jesus has lovingly disclosed it to us. And it's, it's an incredible privilege that we don't take advantage of enough to our detriment, to our deprivation. So today, my, what I'm going to do is my own structure is just simply going to follow the structure of Jesus in his sermon. I'm, my goal every Sunday, but especially today, is I just want to make Jesus' points and then sit down. <laughs> I just want to let Jesus speak. That's it. And our Lord has four points, so let's consider them in order. The first is he revisits the destruction of Jerusalem verses 20 to 24, because again, as we saw last week, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was a template for what would happen in what was the near future for those disciples was a template for what would happen in the far, far future in the end. And Jesus taught this in the first half of his sermon. He taught them about the near future, the far, far future, and then the middle future, the age of the church. But again, here in verse 20, he feels the need to go back again to what they would face in the near future immediately. And to revisit last week in 66 AD, a group called the Zealots rebelled against Rome. Caesar said, I've had enough, and he sent his armies in. And finally, um, the armies of uh, Titus did just what Jesus says here. They encircled Jerusalem, tore it down, and burned it. And as the historian Josephus said, the city burned so hot that the gold of the temple flowed between the rocks. Um, So, Jesus says, when you see this, when you see this, verse 20, you know that the desolation of Jerusalem is coming. There will be no escape. This word desolation is a reference to the prophecy in Daniel, Daniel 9.27, 11.31 and 12.11, which speaks of desolations to come. Regardless, Jesus tells these disciples, verse 21, when you see this, everyone in the whole district of Judea should flee. Do not go back to the city. You might be tempted to go back and fight for your country. You might be tempted to go back and, and rescue your loved ones. Do not Do it. Do not go through the enemy lines and into the city because, verse 22, these will be the days of God's judgment, God's vengeance that has been written about before, and when when it's God working, you can't escape it. So Jesus isn't prescribing cowardice. He's just saying there will be the the very power of God at work. No one will escape it. No one will escape it. So don't don't think otherwise. Um. And again, here we see another bookend in the book of Luke. In Jesus' first sermon, in Luke 4, he concluded it by saying that the passage he was reading then, Isaiah 61, verse 1, was fulfilled in their hearing. And now the book of Luke ends with Jesus preaching about what will, again, fulfill Scripture. All of this has been anticipated in the Old Testament. These are not random events of simple cause and effect. It is God who sovereignly brings history along And it is God who will bring it to its completion. We will revisit this, but this is perhaps the most important question of your life. Who do you think moves history along and will bring it to completion? Who is that? Do you think it's God or do you think it's man? That is the fundamental question of your life and mine. Well, Back to this day. This day will be awful, verse 23. God's people will fall by the sword and be scattered across the earth. And to this day, we we call this, verse 24, the Jewish diaspora, the, the, the scattering of the Jews across the world. And Jerusalem will remain trampled by the Gentiles, by non it's a word for non-Jews, until, verse 24, the times or, or the season, in, the word there indicates a section of history, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled or filled up or completed. The fall of Jerusalem is the awful closing of the door 
on one age of history and the beginning of a new age in God's working in history where the Jews will fade to the background and the nations, the Gentiles, come to the foreground of God's work. This is the age when God's gospel goes to the nations and the nations are grafted in to God's one olive tree, the one people of God. And it will remain this way. God will continue working this way in this age that we live in now until it is fulfilled. Until it is fulfilled. What does that mean? I'm not really sure. (laughs) God knows, though. God knows. Until it is fulfilled, until it is finished. And Jerusalem is still trampled underfoot by Gentiles even to this day. Jerusalem is prosperous, but divided. And if if the modern nation state of Israel wants to do anything of significance, they still need to pick up the phone and call Washington and say, do we have permission? Gentiles still trample underfoot the city of David. Well, as we said last week, Jesus prophesied all of this, and it all came, he's talking here about 30 AD. So it all came to pass 40 years later, 40 years later. The question, why, why did it take so long? Why did it take so long? It is interesting that it was 40 years later, a, a biblical generation. Um, and while the church over the years has taught many reasons for this, for this 40-year period, the best conjecture f- for me is that God waited in mercy for the sake of that first generation of Christians, for Mary, for James, for others. God waited as long as his justice would possibly allow him And then the day of vengeance finally came and the door closed on that age, on those times, the times of the Jews. Okay, well, that's the first point, the destruction of Jerusalem. But but with that trailing comment there, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And with this comment, Jesus quickly jumps over the times of the Gentiles and his thinking to the far future again, to the fulfillment, the ending of the times of the Gentiles. And so that leads us to the second section here, the coming of the Son of Man. And there will be, verse 25. Okay, so now I've talked a lot about not getting lost in the weeds of timelines, but it is important here again to orient ourselves to when is Jesus talking about here and ask ourselves uh, what exactly, what exact moment is he talking about? Because historians did say that there were signs in the sky during the years leading up to 70 AD. So some people have argued that Jesus is still here talking about 70 AD, that he's still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem here with these words. And I've, I've sat in classes, at least one class from a professor who argued this, and, and many, many times these scholars rely heavily um, for this argument on the Jewish historian Josephus's writings. Josephus sometimes is prone to exaggerating things. Um, so I, I respect these folks. I would jump in a lot of foxholes with them, but I respectfully disagree on this point. Just taking the words in front of us, it seems here that Jesus' mental focus at the end of verse 24 is no longer on the near future, but the, the end of the middle future, that is, the end end, <laughs> the far future. The church, the end of the church age, um, the end times. And in addition to that, what he talks about here seems to be less um, localized to just one place. It seems more cosmic in scale. Verse 26, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Perhaps referring to some change in this literal, literally in the celestial bodies. This is, this is cosmic. No wonder he writes that at this point, or he says at this point, people will be fainting with fear and foreboding. Just people in general on the earth will be filled with such fear because something will be monumentally and cosmically off in the universe. What would that be? Jesus doesn't tell us. (laughs) He doesn't go any further. Tantalizing to think about it, but he doesn't tell us. And remember this, he could have told us if he wanted to, uh, but he doesn't. He tells us what we need to know, and he will, by the end of this sermon, in a much more earthy and less sensational way, uh, way, tell us what we really need to know. But, okay, but, but then still thinking linearly here, still thinking about the timeline, after all these things that, that will be seen and visible, these, these are seen and visible signs that will be monumental and, and cosmic. These are, these are not secret signs. Hello, Jehovah's Witnesses. These are not secret. 
Then, verse 27, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite name for himself, the Son of Man will return in power and in glory. So then, disciples, verse 28, when you see these things begin to take place, don't faint or fear along with the rest of the world. Our generation, our generation takes fear and uses it as a manipulative club to get its way. We, we think fear is noble. We, we think fear gets us somewhere. But there's often nothing noble about fear. And that's the case here. When, when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, don't be controlled by fear, but straighten up. Stiffen your spine. Raise your heads. The sense here is, is, is walk tall in confidence, though all around you are literally fainting with foreboding. Though the world is freaking out, freaking out. Stand strong, stand confident, stand tall, have a stiff spine. Why? Why? Because the world faints with fear because judgment is coming, but not for you, Jesus' disciples. He will redeem you, Jesus says. Redeem you. Those of you older folks, like, like someone coming back for layaway, to, to get something out of layaway. He, he will redeem you. He will buy you out. He will deliver you out. That's what he's coming back for for you. This is the best moment. He comes in power and great glory, not to judge you, but to raise you, his people, from the dead. To glorify us in new glorified bodies. As Paul will write later in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 43, we will be raised in glory, in the glory of Jesus' resurrection. Glory. Jesus will come on the clouds in power and in glory. And you think about this, when, when Luke writes, Luke doesn't, um, there's no space for extraneous things when these ancient writers write. So if they put something in there, it's for a reason. It's for a reason. You have to ask yourself, why, why does Jesus mention about the cosmic signs? Well, one, he wants us to, to note that that's coming. But, but why will that happen? Why, why will there be this cosmically spooky thing that will happen where the very powers of the heavens will be shaken? Well, funny coincidences here that are no coincidences at all between this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 and 41, Paul says that every body, every, every thing in the universe, whether human bodies or heavenly bodies, like the sun, the stars, nebula, moons, black holes, everything has a certain kind of glory. Everything, you, have been vested right now with a certain kind of glory, certain kind of glory. And, um, but, but when Christ returns, when Christ returns, those things will need to give way and, and recede and retire in the face of this coming glory that is coming. When we are raised from the dead, we will be robed in a new glory, the very glory of God. And it's as if the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the, the very fabric of the universe will say, it's all yours now, goodbye. Like the darkness receding from the rising sun in the morning. That's what's happening. When you see the heavens shaking, you can know Jesus is coming. The greater glory is on its way. the glory of the resurrection of Jesus. They'll give way to a greater glory when this second Adam comes on the clouds in his resurrection power. So this is what God is after in all these things. There is no joy in God in the death of the wicked. There is no glee with God in vengeance. But God must clear away that which is perishable. Paul uses that phrase. That we robed right now in a perishable glory. God must clear away the perishable glory in order to make space for the imperishable glory that he brings. 
He must clear away that which is corrupted because of sin in order to bring his glorious new world that is filled with imperishable, indestructible life. This is why heaven is described in Revelation with Jesus at the center and there's no light needed because the light is coming from Jesus. It's as if he's the nuclear reactor that gives the power of light for all eternity and all creation forever and ever and ever. It all comes from his indestructible life proven in his resurrection. All of it will radiate out from his glory and his power, the Son of Man risen from the dead. This is why Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. So I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is when he, what he's coming for, to gain victory and to share that victory with us, to robe us in his victorious glory. So, first there is the fall of Jerusalem, which is, which is like a paradigm, a template for what's coming in the, in the far, far future, at the end, end, the coming of the Son of Man, who will come in wrath for the world, but for redemption for all who believe in Him, for all who believe in Him and all who have lived with Him as their King, all who have endured in submission to His reign. So, do you believe in him? Is that you? Is that you? This is the central question of your life and mine. Who drives history? Who do you think is coming at the end? Who will resolve history? Will it be man or will it be God? And there's no third option. I'm, I'm not going to use any, um, you know, like emotional manipulation here right now. I just put the question before you. It's either man or God. Which is it? Jesus has proven by his resurrection from the dead he is it. He's the judge. He's the resolver of history. He will wrap things up. Um, our first father fell. We are, imperishable. we are perishable. Therefore, all our efforts to save ourselves are, are worthless, are worthless. We cannot resolve history. We cannot bring things to a utopian future. The harder we try, the more we mess things up. Look around your world today, for crying out loud. But if we have learned anything from the events of this week, these, these crazy, amazing, mind-blowing events that I, I wondered if they would ever happen, and the events leading up to this week, we, we've seen that man cannot do anything. You think about the events that led up to the decision this week. Nuts. <laughs> Nuts. Nuts. None of us would have been smart enough to script any of that. It is God who moves history along. And the only question is whether when he returns, his return will cause for you craven fear or incredible joy. Those are the only two options. Which one do you choose? And it all turns on whether you and I make peace with your returning king now in this age as he delays his return, as he delays just as he did before, as he delays his return in mercy and mercy, because every day we live on this earth, every moment we, every moment we have a breath, every breath is a breath of mercy. Every, every breath that you just took is a, is a breath of mercy given to you by a holy, holy, holy God who is returning one day, but, but he gives mercy now, just as Paul says in um, Romans 2. He gives us that mercy, not that we would spend it on ourselves and do whatever we want, but that we would repent that we would turn from our old ways and trust him and live with him as our king. Will you do that? If you have not, <laughs> will you do that? So again, I'm, I'm not going to strong arm you with explosive language. Jesus' own language here is explosive enough. <laughs> will you consider it soberly and turn to him in faith and repentance if you have not? Well, this leads us to the parable 
of the fig tree that Jesus tells his disciples in verses 29 to 33. And we who live in Tree City should immediately understand the parable. Um, Look at the trees, he says. He's speaking to disciples now, speaking to Christians again. When you see blossoms on the tree, then you know what season you're in, verse 30. And when you see these things I've told you about, then you'll know, verse 31, what's about to happen. And then to reiterate that, Jesus tells these disciples that their generation, their generation, I, I believe, will not pass away until all has taken place. Again, there's some controversy here about this verse's meaning, but I think it's, I think it's pretty straightforward. Jesus is simply telling his listeners that their generation will not pass away until the near future events take place. And that's what happened. It, it took 40 years, but that generation did not pass away until the, the template for the far future, the fall of Jerusalem, occurred. Um, they did come to see the tree giving its telltale signs and the Roman armies encircling Jerusalem. So, then today, we are to take confidence from this. And in reading verse 33, Jesus has proven his words to be true. Jesus has proven his words to be true. And so, we ought to, we ought to take that then and, and look around us and, and remind ourselves that even the cosmos, even the cosmos itself will one day be shaken even the, the very laws of physics and chemistry that we rely upon every day are contingent on something else. They are contingent. They are not everlasting and eternal. They are contingent on the power and the sovereign choices of God. In fact, God in Christ. So even the cosmos itself will be shaken, but not Jesus' words. He proved that by his resurrection, and he proved it because his words 30 years in advance came true, just as he said that they would. Everything else is perishable, but not Jesus' words. His words that you are reading right now are more sure, more steady, more reliable than any law of physics or science that you can put in front of anybody else. They are the sure things. So we're to look back to what he said about Jerusalem and take confidence in that about what he says about our generation and our future. It will come to pass. It will come to pass. The question is, what do we do about that? That's the question. So we come to the fourth point, and the fourth point is the present watch. We now come to the present in verses 34 to 38. Jesus is done telling us anything else about the future. Nothing here about Israel or the millennium or red heifers or the rapture, nothing. The most important thing here for us to understand is that we live between the ends of the ages in the age of the Gentiles and the end is coming and we should live in the present with with that future in mind. We should live in the present prepared and watchful, Jesus says. Watch yourselves. We don't prepare for the future by anticipating it. We don't prepare for the future by forecasting it. We prepare for the future by living in watchful faithfulness in the present. In the present. So, Jesus finally comes to a command for us. What do we do with this? So he says, verse 34, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves, specifically for three things. Watch yourselves. He does it, again, when he says watch yourselves, he does not mean live in a, a navel-gazing lifestyle. <laughs> Jesus only tells us three things to watch out for. He doesn't say be consumed with yourself and look at yourself all the time. No, he says specifically three things we should watch out for that we don't fall into. We don't fall into, and we'll see why in a second, but let's look at what each one of them are right now. The first one is dissipation. Dissipation. The word dissipate means to, to dissolve. You see, you hear both in the same, um, same letters there. It means to squander. It means the squandering of time and energy, the gifts that God has given you. Um, you we could argue about what's the most common way today that people live in dissipation, but I would argue that uh, porn and video games are big ones. Um, there's other, there's other ways that we can squander our lives. We're, we're, meant, we're meant for sex and heroic deeds, uh, especially men. 
So the problem is not sexual pleasure and, and uh, adventure. That, that, that's not the problem. The problem is seeking, to, seeking those things through fake channels, through fake means, fake ways. <clears throat> and what that does is it only emasculates a person. It, it drains us of energy and life when we engage in those things. It fogs up the mind. Porn pollutes the heart, and it weighs down the whole person. It weighs us down, and it leaves a man or a woman blind to these future realities. It puts blinders on us, and all we can see is the present. We can only live in the present. We can only live for the next hit of dopamine. Dissipation. Squandering one's life. This is dangerous, Jesus says. Secondly, he says, drunkenness or addiction. Obviously, there's, there's overlap here between these two, but he specifically is talking about alcohol. But in our generation, we should especially include marijuana in this. Marijuana has a much longer half-life in the body than even alcohol does, especially the marijuana that's consumed today. Um, and it leaves a person, therefore it leaves a person high for longer. Our, our state has only added to the burdens of its people. It's only weighed down the people more by legalizing marijuana. That's the deception of drink and drugs, is that they feel like they lighten, but they only weigh us down further. They don't do anything about the problems that already weighed us down, and they only add more burdens on top of it. Well, the third here is the cares of this life. The cares of this life. And at first glance, you might think, huh, that's kind of the oddball of these three. Um, but anxiety and worry, the, the cares of this life, they do on one level, they do the very same thing that porn and marijuana smoking do. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting when you look at the Bible to notice the, the company that certain sins keep. And there is, a, there, there is a, a sense in which porn and marijuana do the very same thing that the cares of this life do to us. That is, they, they shrink down our view to only, only a very narrow focus. Um, this is what fear does. It, it shrinks everything down to a binary black and white world where either the thing that I fear comes to pass or it doesn't. It shrinks everything down. It puts blinders on us. Um, Jesus, again, we, we, we preachers, we like to rail about porn and drugs, but what Jesus teaches here is that our daily cares can have the same power over us to put us asleep and to make us dull to spiritual realities, to, to, to dull us from, from living today in light of that future to just living for today for itself. And it can have the very same power that, that porn and marijuana can have over us. Isn't that something? Our daily anxieties over money, jobs, kids, inflation, they can reduce our whole life down to just a little, tiny, dense, weighty, heavy lead ball. Jesus doesn't want that for us. Again, Jesus is telling us this because he loves us. He doesn't want us trapped in these things. Again, what all three of these have in common is that they put blinders on us and they cause us only to see today and therefore we fall asleep and we, we, we live asleep to the realities which are our very eternities ride upon. So, when we live that way, sleepwalking through life, then that day, the return of the Son of Man, verse 34, will come upon us like a trap. It's like that. We'll be trapped. And that day will come. And that day will come. It will, and it'll come upon everyone, everyone on the earth. But when Jesus comes, he, he says, will he find faithfulness upon the earth? Will he find faithfulness among us? Because authentic Christians do not just pray prayer once, they endure to the end. Perfectly? No, no, no. <laughs> no. But they endure to the end. They endure to the end resisting these things. James, uh, Peter, and John all say the same thing. God does not call us to lives of perfection, but he does call us to lives of resisting these things of resistance, of rebellion, no longer against God, but against these things, against dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. We're called to lives of rebellion against these things. Um, he calls us to stay awake, verse 36. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall into these traps. Avoid them. Remember, the fall of Jerusalem is a template for us. And you, already, you realize, Christian, you already have one sign already. 
the, the cosmos, as far as I know, is not shaking yet. The, the laws of physics are not changing yet. But one sign you do have, and that's the church. The church itself is a sign to ourselves that God is moving, and we do live in the last age, the age of the Gentiles. It is coming. It is coming. And so we need to stay awake. We need to watch and stay awake. And the way, the way we do that, the, the way we do that is, Jesus says, primarily is through prayer. Through prayer. Through prayer. Um, one of the ways that we, a uh, little Bible reading tip, often the way that we do a command, the way scripture puts it, is it will be followed, the command will be followed by an ing verb, by an ing word. So Jesus says here, stay awake. Stay awake um, in verse 36. Stay awake at all times, comma, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. The way we stay awake is by praying, Jesus means. Okay, so, so what does this mean? How does, how does praying lead us to strength? How does praying lead to strength? And Jesus here is disclosing to us a profoundly powerful discipline in the Christian life that you and I neglect all the time. All the time. So let me preface about what I'm about to say is nothing in what I'm about to say um, should be heard as don't pray for healing. Don't pray for the grandchild to be uh, uh, healed or for the surgery to go well or for, the, for this to be healed of. It, th th nothing of the sort. Pray for all of that. Pray for all of that. Pray more for all of that. Um, we, we, we come before a merciful, merciful God. But... What Jesus means for us here is to gain strength by praying. And the, the primary way that, that, well, first off, Jesus tells us to do this because we don't have the strength in ourselves. First off, we need to realize that. We do not have the strength in ourselves. We need him. So this is how we endure, and we endure in such a way in which he gets all the glory. We exercise faith, and we exercise faith by prayer. Prayer is the primary way that we exercise faith, and we endure by faith, God then gets all the glory because he then is the giver of all the strength, of all the strength. So, but, okay, so how does prayer actually do this? And, and here it is. When we pray according to the priorities of God as disclosed to us in Scripture, in Scripture, God moves in powerful ways in our life. So, so for example, I'm, I'm just going to turn to one random prayer. Let's, okay, I'm, I'm now in Colossians. I'm now in Colossians. And uh, I come down with cancer. So I, I pray, I pray, um, God, will you please heal my cancer today, please? <laughs> will you do it right now, please? <laughs> Because that's what I would like. Um, pray that. However, w whatever your will is in that, Father, I, I also pray, Colossians 1.9, I, I pray that you would fill me with the knowledge of your will in, with spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, verse 10, I may walk in a manner worthy of you as I walk into the chemo treatment, that I may walk in a way that is fully pleasing to you, that I may bear fruit, no matter what your answer is to my first request, that I may, I may bear fruit in every good work, and that I may increase in the knowledge of you through, as I endure through this great trial. It is grievous. It hurts. I hate it, God. Take it away. But will you give me this too? Verse 11, very similar to what Jesus is saying here. Verse 11, um, may I bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of you through all this. And, and as I do this, verse 11, may I be strengthened, strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience through this with joy. That the doctors, that the nurses, that my friends and family, that my children, they may see a supernatural joy on my face as, as I face my imminent possible demise. 
as I face the, the, the troubles that, that are coming at me, will you give me endurance and patience with joy? And through it all, would you give me a heart that genuinely, authentically, verse 12 gives you thanks? Why? Because no matter what happens, you have qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You've delivered me from the domain of darkness, and you've transferred me to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom, here it is again, we have redemption. One day you're coming for me. One day you're coming for me. Whether I live another 30 years or one year, you're coming for me, and I have the forgiveness of sins. I am cleansed, and on that day, as Jesus says here, I will stand before you. Verse 36 of Luke 21. I will stand before you. Why? Not because of my righteousness. I will stand before you on that day on your righteousness, on the righteousness of Christ. When we learn to pray that way, oh, God unleashes storehouses of power and glory upon your life. Hold on. You will never be the same. You'll be filled with strength, with strength, even in weakness. Far too often, the, the church has, the church in general, has, has a, a, almost like delighted and wallowed in weakness, as if, as if weakness is the no, most noble thing, but it's, it's actually the opposite. Many times we wallow in our weakness because we refuse to repent of our dissipation, our drunkenness, and, and, our, and our being enslaved to, to the cares of this life. We, we, we wallow in that because that's all we have because we can't get our, our heads out of that to see the future and to live today in light of the future. No, the, the noble thing is to live in strength, not our strength, the strength of God, the strength of Christ's resurrection power. So we do that by praying according to the priorities of God. And where do we find the priorities of God except but right here? <laughs> Especially in the prayers of Scripture. This is why at the beginning of your directory, which we call the, the phone directory, a prayer list first, and it's why we put certain Scripture passages on the inside page to assist you with this. We want to pray according to the priorities of God. Um, and it's, it's no coincidence here that at the end, the last couple of verses here in Luke, Luke records that every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I'll just say very briefly the, the, the last two ways. We, we endure by prayer, praying according to the teaching of Jesus. According to the teaching of Jesus, and we endure by praying according to the teaching of Jesus, according to the priorities of God, together. Together. We are in us. You are not a you by yourself. You cannot endure by yourself. There is no such thing as a person who endures to the end by themselves. We endure by renewing our minds in, in the priorities of God as found in the teaching of Jesus, and we endure by praying according to those priorities, and we endure by doing it together in the trials and tribulations that we do face in this age. We endure together, but we endure in hope because on that day, C.S. Lewis once said, person sitting to your left or to your right, if, if you saw them right now in the glory that they will be robed in on that day, you wouldn't even recognize them. In fact, right now, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship them for the glory that will be robed in that day. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming for you, Christian. He's not coming to judge you. He's coming to redeem you, to bring you home. Live today. Live today in hope of that. Live today watching out for those things that would, that would cloud your mind and, and block you from seeing that and living in light of that day today. Live today in humble, enduring faithfulness to Him, living according to His priorities, asking Him for strength to live with this strength and watch Him open the floodgates of His glory and His glorious strength upon you in your life today. Watch the resurrection come forward today in your life. Well, let me pray for that now. Since we're talking about prayer, let me pray for that now.
Father, I pray for this strength. I want to begin with myself, but I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here. I pray that you would cause us to um, hope in that coming day. I pray that you would grant us, each one of us, repentance. I want to pray especially right now. Um, I've mentioned a couple different sins today that are often have a great deal of shame attached to them. Porn is one, drunkenness is another. I pray that if the one person who is trapped in that sin needs help, that you would sovereignly ordain another connection in this church whereby that person would receive help from another brother or sister and be delivered from that dark pit. Will you bring deliverance? Will you use us? Will you bring deliverance, however, not for our glory, not for our fame, but for the fame of your name, for the glory of your name? Will you bring deliverance from the cares of this world where we are enslaved to fear, where, where we're controlled by fear, where the fear of, fears of the cares of this life are actually our functional God? Will you grant us repentance of that as well? Take off the blinders. Take off the blinders. Let us live as though you are returning soon. Do this in me. Grant me repentance where I need it. And do so for my brothers and sisters, I pray. And I know, Father, that you do this because you want us to live in joy. You want us to live in the joy of your strength, which is a sweet, free life. So bring that to pass. Make us a people filled with joy in your incredibly strong strength, we pray. Amen. Amen. So go resting today in the, the privilege that you have, knowing the end and knowing who's coming for you in the end and for what purpose, to redeem you in love. Amen.